there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot continuing my talks on courtship. I told the story of John and Betty Stam, who were great models to me as a child, as a young woman. I had met Betty Scott Stam when she was just Betty Scott. When I was only four years old, four or five years old, I think, she came to our house on her way to China as a missionary. I remember hearing when I was eight years old how Betty and John had been captured by Chinese communists and had been beheaded. That made a very deep impression on my eight-year-old mind of what discipleship is about. And then, years later, I came across the biography of John and Betty Stam called The Triumph of John and Betty Stam, written by Geraldine Taylor. And I read you some of that story. Now I want to give you another more recent example of a couple who did it right. I had this letter, and I thought, what could be more appropriate, since it's very difficult for people to believe that a woman my age can possibly sympathize with people of younger generations. I do sympathize. I think I understand pretty well. I've been where you are, longing for marriage, you single women. I didn't think that there was a chance that I was ever going to get married. And I think my memory is pretty clear on that, but I won't expect you to believe just me. I want to give you as many uh, supports to what I'm saying as I can possibly find, and this letter was certainly one of them. She says, I was able to hear most of the program you recorded with Dr. Dobson on Focus on the Family. I listened with mixed feelings at the message you and Dr. Dobson were communicating. I am very thankful for your open, honest, and straight biblical stand on premarital sexual relationships. I am also very saddened when I hear the kinds of scenarios that Dr. Dobson gave and sense the turmoil that young and not-so-young Christian people are going through over what should be clear-cut moral issues. The scenario that stimulated me to write to you was the one about a 30-year-old woman who is struggling with wanting to feel loved and have a committed marriage relationship and experience the joy of a sexual relationship. She said that there seems to be no one on the horizon and she will probably live out the rest of her life unfulfilled in these desires. Oh, how I can sympathize with her. Your reply to her to trust in our loving, sovereign God who wants to fill us with joy and bliss was exactly what she needs to fill her mind with over and over and over. And let me put in a parenthesis here that I do get letters from people who say, don't tell me to just trust God. Well, that's the only way. And I'm going to keep on telling you and to fill your mind with God's love. To carry on with this letter, I worked as a director of Christian education and youth for five years, and in discipling several teenage girls, had many occasions to talk with them about dating, marriage, and sex. 
Whenever I would talk to them about how to stay out of bed with a guy by not giving in to any part of an intimate physical relationship, they would look at me like I just didn't understand because I was 24 and not dating anyone. I assured them that I had been where they were and that I had asked more than one guy to drive me straight home because I would not go and park with him. I also knew what it was to embrace a guy too long just because it felt good and stirred up wonderful feelings in me. However, I was committed to Jesus Christ, and I was going to take the risk and believe that his promises to meet my needs and fill me with joy and abundant living with or without a husband were true. Therefore, I could delight myself in the Lord and leave the desires of my heart up to God since he promised to give them to me. I had always wanted to be married, but was never willing to compromise God's standards by going out and looking for a husband. The men are supposed to be the wooers, you know, you gentlemen who are listening to me. It's your responsibility to move toward marriage. We women have one responsibility, and that is to wait. Wait on the Lord. The letter goes on, like you had mentioned in your experiences, I had determined not to seek a husband. I had given that desire to God, and if he wanted me to be married, it was his responsibility to arrange it. By ages 28, 29, and 30, I had pretty much determined that I would serve the Lord single the rest of my life. I didn't like that option, and I wrestled with God every time I sat through a wedding ceremony or saw a newborn baby. But there was no one on the horizon, and I wasn't going to compromise my convictions. All this time, I was wondering if what I was telling other girls about what honored God in a dating relationship, I would be able to stick with if I was really deeply in love with a man. They also wondered the same thing. I knew what was right, but I didn't trust my emotions. Through God-arranged circumstances, midway through my 30th year, I met the man I was to marry just a year later. Not that it is a surprise to anyone who has tasted, but God is good and faithful to all his promises. A real delight and strength in our marriage of seven wonderful months, when she wrote this letter, she'd been married seven months, is the respect we built into our relationship while dating. We both had the same convictions of preserving not only our virginity, but our chastity, so that there would be no regrets if we got married or if we didn't. The first time we held hands was literally one day before he asked me to marry him. Our first kiss was right after he proposed to me. And by the way, if anybody has just tuned in and they hear Elizabeth Elliot's voice and, they, and they're saying, there she goes, telling that story of her and Jim Elliot again, it's not the story of Jim Elliot this time. It's a much more recent one. It's a letter dated May 15th, 1987, written by a woman who's been married seven months when she wrote the letter. She says, our first kiss was right after he proposed to me. Then during our three-month engagement... We were extremely careful. And two weeks before our marriage, we were even more determined to make our honeymoon full of wonderful surprises. So we backed off even more. Consequently, our honeymoon was a time of great joy and relaxation with no guilt whatsoever. We often thank God for the grace he gave us to please him in our dating and engagement. 
And that same grace is available to everyone who asks and puts obedience before feelings. I'm writing this lengthy letter to encourage you in the opportunities you have as a widely known and respected Christian woman. Keep speaking out for truth. Even when people's dilemmas tear at our hearts, truth with mercy is what they really need. Truth with mercy. I'm convinced that that's what you need too. And that's why I do give out truth, which is sometimes seemingly hard. Maybe I come across as harsh at times. I don't mean to. I really want you to know that my heart goes out to you, that I sympathize with you. I read your letters. I pray over them. I pray that not daily but often that God will arouse the young Christian men to their responsibility to be husbands and fathers. I know 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds that have never even thought of the fact that they have a responsibility to God to be husbands and fathers unless God has led them to be single. And I don't know very many men that would say that God has given them the gift of singleness. That's a rare thing. But are you moving in the direction of marriage? Well, I'm hoping that the guidelines that I'm giving you will preserve you from mistakes and disasters. I want to emphasize that your commitment must be to Jesus Christ first and foremost. Much more important than a commitment to a man or a woman. Whose way do you want? You have to decide that question. Lent is a good time to think about whose way do I want. Take time off. Which way do you think is likely to lead to the greatest happiness? In your heart of hearts, do you believe I'm right in what I'm telling you? I hope that you realize that I'm speaking the truth, and I hope, by the grace of God, that I'm speaking the truth with mercy. I understand how immense and humanly speaking, irresistible, today's pressures are. To you parents, make sure your children understand that you understand. But at the same time, hold before them the way of obedience and peace. Teach them to ask for and to expect God's holding power. You know, Jesus once said, you have not because you ask not. Do you not have the power to do without sexual activity? Maybe you've never asked. Do you not believe that God can lead you to the right husband or the right wife? I shouldn't say lead you to the right husband. I should say lead the right husband to you because the men are supposed to do the wooing. Can God lead you, men, to the right wife? Have you ever asked him to? If you asked, was it in a half-hearted way or did you really expect that he would guide you? Remember Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. You are loved with an everlasting love. 
That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you again today about courtship. A pretty dangerous topic to talk about. I know I'm going to get some angry letters or some letters from people who are absolutely incredulous, especially when I talk about celibacy and abstinence from sexual activity as long as God keeps you single. Celibacy is not contrary to nature. That's one of the world's lies. The world would have you think that you got to have sex. I say rubbish, baloney, balderdash, bilge. You don't got to have sex. I used to live with jungle Indians in South America. I lived in very close contact with jungle Indians. In fact, for one whole year, I slept in the bedroom with an Indian couple. To them, it was there was nothing strange about this. It was a palm-leafed shack with only two rooms, one huge room where everybody else slept and one sort of a side room where this young couple slept. They were very young. I would say the woman was maybe 17. Uh, her No, I think maybe she was about 19 and her husband was about 12. But take my word for it, they were sexually mature. Anyway, they did produce a baby during that year, and the woman questioned me about missionaries. She said, you know, I've never seen people have so many children as missionaries. How do they do it? Well, I was a little stymied by that. I, I thought the answer was pretty obvious. They, there's only one way to have babies, at least in those days. There was only one way. Nowadays, we hear of all these breathtaking things of genetic engineering and that sort of thing, but I didn't know what to say to her. I did ask another question. I said, and what about you people? Don't you have that many babies? And she said, well, we never have babies more than every two years. So I said, well, how do you do that? And she laughed and she said, is that all you foreigners ever think about? using a word that's roughly equivalent to sex. Is that all you foreigners ever think about? And I noticed that after this girl's baby was born, her husband slept on the floor for about six months. Of course, she was nursing her baby, and lactation is one method of contraception, as long as you don't feed the baby anything else. I think it is a fairly safe method of contraception, not 100%, but it does work in most cases, as witness the Indians' lives themselves. They had no other forms of contraception than abstinence and lactation or breastfeeding. And I don't think I ever knew an Indian to have a baby more often than every two years. But they were willing to abstain and it was custom for them to abstain during pregnancy and for as much as six months, at least in this one case, after pregnancy. So it is not contrary to nature. It is entirely possible for people to control themselves. I want to read some more from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. In his chapter on Christian behavior, he says, Surrender to all our desires, obviously leads to impotence. 
disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of health, good humor, and frankness. He had been referring to the fact that nowadays people like to tell themselves that any kind of sexual activity, anywhere, anyhow, is healthy and reasonable and uh, good-humored. Well, he's refuting that nonsense. I'm interested that he says surrender to all our desires leads to impotence, for one thing, because I heard not long ago that one of the problems that campus physicians are dealing with, surprisingly, is impotence in young men. And my theory is that when you look for satisfaction in everybody's bed, you find satisfaction in nobody's. In other words, they're getting so much sex that there's no fun left in it and they can't get excited. To go on with C.S. Lewis, for any happiness, even in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. So the claim made by every desire when it is strong to be healthy and reasonable counts for nothing. Every sane and civilized man must have some set of principles by which he chooses to reject some of his desires and to permit others. One man does this on Christian principles, another on hygienic principles, another on sociological principles. The real conflict is not between Christianity and nature, but between Christian principle and other principles in the control of nature. For nature, in the sense of natural desire, will have to be controlled anyway, unless you were going to ruin your whole life. The Christian principles are admittedly stricter than the others, but then we think you will get help towards obeying them, which you will not get towards obeying the others. Well, I hope you'll think about this very reasonable, logical, and brilliant man, C.S. Lewis. Every sane and civilized man must have a set of principles. And I'm going to give you a set of principles. Actually, I have about 15 things to say here on the subject of singleness. If you're single, think about the fact that celibacy is not contrary to nature. Just Erase from your thinking that nonsense that the world has fed you. Offer your celibacy for the love of Christ. And by celibacy, I simply mean this requirement for today. I don't mean that you have to have a gift of celibacy whereby God has given you the word that you're never going to be married. Not too many people have that kind of assurance. But if you are single, then you must be celibate according to God's rules. And celibacy, if it's not your choice, is not your idea of what is going to make you happy, then I would say the first thing to do with it is to simply offer it for the love of Christ. Remember that there will be grace sufficient to give you supernatural power and vigor God's grace is always sufficient for all our needs. Remember that. My grace, God says, is all you need. It gives us supernatural power. Do not give greater weight 
after your difficulties than they actually have. It's a temptation to all of us, isn't it, to exaggerate our problems, to feel sorry for ourselves, to make much, as Amy Carmichael said, of anything appointed. And she wrote, If I make much of anything appointed, magnify it secretly to myself or insidiously to others, then I know nothing of Calvary love. So don't make a federal case out of your difficulties, a big deal. Remember that man is not mere flesh and blood. And by man, I'm using the generic term. We human beings are not mere flesh and blood. But we also have understanding, choice, and freedom. The next thing is to take this golden opportunity of being celibate, being free from the bonds of marriage and the responsibilities and the privileges of marriage, take it as a golden opportunity for a closer relationship with Christ, a deeper understanding of his mystery. Lent is an excellent time to give yourself the chance to learn to know him better. Don't try to ignore or despise your sexuality. Bring it willingly and gladly under the authority of Christ. Be womanly. Be manly. Be masculine. Be feminine. Don't be afraid to accept these divine gifts. Natural desire for love of man or woman is not the sole means of human fulfillment. Let's not forget that. We sometimes feel that we cannot be fulfilled without marriage. But that's not the sole means of fulfillment. Real love, a real and demanding love, deepens and broadens our sense of responsibility, which is a sign of maturity. The measure of our maturity is the measure of our self-giving. The next thing is that all of us, whether married or single, are meant to give testimony to the mystery of Christ and the Church. This is what is behind my understanding of masculinity and femininity. It's not merely a physical distinction. It is a theological distinction, and it represents the relationship between Christ and his people. Christ is the bridegroom. And we, the church, constitute his bride. Doesn't make any difference whether we're married or single. We must all give testimony to that mystery. The single Christian testifies to the mystery of Christ by a life wholly dedicated to the kingdom. This will give a deep knowledge of the human heart. Your sacrifice for Christ affects the whole body. Your obedience. Well, that takes me down as far as number nine in my 15 things to think about if you're single. We don't have time for any more of them. But may God comfort your heart and assure you of his love and his holy and high purpose for your life, which will be fulfillment. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott, talking with you again today on the subject of courtship. Remember that this is the season of Lent, and I particularly wanted to choose this subject to talk about 
in a time when we are supposed to be consciously restraining our physical appetites. Many Christians fast during Lent in some way. Some people fast whole days at a time, maybe even weeks at a time. Others give up one particular kind of food or some particular kind of pleasure. And the Bible speaks of sexual fasting, even for husbands and wives. And I'm not going to tell you whether you should or shouldn't do any of these particular things, but I do feel strongly that Lent is a time when we should be taking stock of our spiritual lives. And courtship is an area where restraint is necessary. So let's think about God's order for men and women today. God's order for men and women is based on the mystery of Christ and the church. It's not a mere matter of taste and preference, whether a man is the head of the house or a woman. The Bible is very clear that the husband is the head of the wife, not the wife of the husband, and that the wife is to submit herself as unto the Lord. We're not talking about marriage now. We're talking about courtship. And I think that the principle applies in courtship, which is at least some kind of an approach toward marriage, isn't it? That the man should be the one who does the wooing. Men were made to take responsibility and risk. We talked to a young man one time who told us that he'd met the perfect woman. She was just exactly what he was looking for in a wife, and he'd been going with her for two and a half years. And Lars said, well, have you asked her to marry you? And he said, no, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And he said, well, I don't know how she feels about me. Here's a man expecting the woman to put all her cards on the table before he makes a move. That's not the way it's supposed to go. I want to read you a letter from Ann Landers. Every now and then, Ann Landers comes up with some real blockbusters. And this is what the letter to her says. I'm 36 years old, a successful career woman who makes over $100,000 a year. I'm no beauty, but I'm certainly presentable. Why can't I hold a man's interest? In my entire life, I've had two lovers. One for three years, the other for six years. Both times... I was dumped. Several months ago, I met a lawyer who is rich, generous, and attractive. He liked me a lot. He called every day, and we went out every weekend. After two months, he cut me dead. I called him four or five times to find out what went wrong. He said he'd been busy. Two months later, I learned from a friend that he thought I was very immature and that I took the relationship too seriously. I wrote him a very loving letter, hoping he would be touched by it. He didn't respond, so I phoned him. As soon as he heard my name, he hollered, Oh, it's you, and he swore. A second later, he said, Can you call me back tomorrow night? I'm in the middle of something. I didn't call back, and neither did he. What's wrong? I can't figure it out. We seem so well-suited to one another. Can you give me a clue, Anne? Anne's reply, a good therapist may be able to help you understand how you are perceived by the men you go out with. From what you've written, I would say you are too aggressive and too willing to let men treat you shabbily. I would agree with Anne Landers that this woman is far too aggressive. She went after this man tooth and nail, didn't she? She let him know 
exactly how she felt about him when he hadn't really made any commitments or apparently hadn't really said very much about loving her. God's order is being reversed. The women are calling the men. And I'm sure that somebody's going to call me or write to me and say, but I don't see anything wrong with asking a guy out for a pizza. I mean, we're just friends. I mean, and what about what about just groups of girls getting guys to go out with him? Is there anything wrong with that? I would ask you, what is the message that you're giving? What are you saying to the men? Well, I'm just saying that, you know, we, we just like to be friends and we could have, have a pizza together and, and maybe I have more money than he does sometime. I mean, maybe I have a better job or whatever. And while I've heard it all, I still believe in God's order. I do believe that the man is supposed to find the wife. I've given you a number of examples. Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. So the man, in this case, a third party, was the one who went out and found her and brought her back. I told you Charles Alexander's story. In his case, he was praying that God would lead him to the right one, and unbeknownst to him, a woman was also praying that God would lead a husband to her, and God brought those prayers together, and God brought those prayers together. Well, here's a letter from another one of your contemporaries, you young folks, if you have a hard time listening to me. This is from a young woman. She says, I've read Passion and Purity, all your books to nieces and nephews, and have listened to your tape from a Dobson broadcast all umpteen times. Well, I haven't written any books to nieces. I've written one book to a nephew called The Mark of a Man. She says, my heart absolutely leaps with excitement in agreement to the things you say. It goes, yeah, that's the way it should be. Unfortunately, I'm finding out that that's not the way it is. It seems to me that instead of men being strong in the Lord, leaders, hunters, taking the initiative like years ago, like God's design, like their ordained role, they're becoming weak and insecure, afraid of rejection and not wanting to take a risk, even to make a simple phone call or invitation. I have found out after some time has passed that so-and-so wanted to ask me out but was afraid I'd say no, so he didn't bother. And I would say to that... Where are the men, the men with the courage to take the risks? Skipping a little bit in her letter, she says, I want to believe in God's order, but where is it anymore? And while I sit waiting for a strong, secure man to enter my life without fear, someone willing to swim against the tide, find out if I'd be interested in him, even though I'm not letting on that I am, simply because he knows the meaning of loving and cherishing a woman and wants to give of himself to another, You know who's getting the guys? I hate the word get. It sounds like you have to earn a relationship, like God isn't even involved. The girls who are obvious are getting the guys, who may be even doing some of the calling and the asking. It seems like the girls who used to win the guys were the ones who didn't act interested and could care less. And yet the guy just kept trying. What about the theory, we desire what we can't have and we come to despise what comes too easily? I think she's quoting from my book, Passion and Purity, there. Does that apply to initially winning a girl's attention or only to sexual encounters? And just exactly what does keep them at arm's length and let them do the chasing mean? I've been attempting to do just that. 
but have achieved little lasting results. After a usual one and only date, friends will offer, maybe you didn't act interested enough. Maybe your looks, spirituality, or purity intimidated him. Maybe he's shy and is waiting for you to make the next move. Maybe you were too, too, too. Maybe you were not enough. And on and on. I get so confused with what I'm supposed to do or not do. I'm ready to forget this whole dating and getting acquainted business. Where's the persistence, the determination to win a girl's heart and trust, cost what it will? Where's the peace, security, confidence, fun, anticipation? Do we have to become aggressive because the men aren't? I try to be a lady in the hope that the guy will be equally as much a man. Is my father in charge here? Or am I supposed to take over? I was recently at a get-together. A friendly man came near me often, would smile, speak to me numerous times, looked me in the eye much longer than the three seconds, and originally made a special attempt to confirm that I was going to be there when everyone was sitting watching a home video at the ending toward the evening, which I'd seen twice before. I kept thinking about the late hour and the mess, so I went to clean up for our host. When I rejoined the group, the attentive fellow asked where I'd been. I soon after decided to leave. It was a weeknight. It was late. I was tired and anxious. And when I said my thanks and my goodbyes, this fellow just looked at me for the longest time. I'm thinking to myself, say something. I can't read your mind or your eyes. And if I tried, I'd probably be wrong and do something wrong accordingly. Whenever I do seem to get a little assertive, it never works. So I just left. I later thought I should have stayed to see if he'd ask for my number. Maybe he will think I didn't like him. I was too friendly, smiling, good listener. Then I'd waver and think, he knows how to find me, or he could figure it out. Is that too much to ask of a man? Where am I going wrong here? I'm 36 and feel like time's a-wasting. I feel like I just don't know how to play the game anymore or what the rules are. I've been trying to give you some rules from the scriptures. Those are the ones that are permanent. Those are the ones that can be counted on. Basically, what I want to say to you is trust God and obey him. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, and I hope you think of me as your friend. I wish I could see your faces. It's always a thrill to me when I go places where there are people in the audience who listen to the program. It's wonderful to be able to realize that there are real people out there listening. But, of course, I record in a studio all by myself with a microphone, and I just pray that the Lord, who knows the hearts of every one of you and the needs of every one of you, will somehow suit the message to each person. We've been talking about courtship, and probably most of my listeners are way past the stage of courtship. Most of you, I suppose, are or have been married. But I hope that the principles of surrender to God, trusting God, praying about the things which are deeply meaningful to us will in some way meet your need. 
And so I'm going to continue today talking about courtship. Lent, as we have been saying, is a time for personal restraint, a time to lay off some of our ordinary pleasures in order to concentrate on the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. We need, most of us, repentance every day. And I say most of us because surely there are some who don't sin every day, but I'm not one of them. I need repentance. And Lent is a time to examine our hearts, to pray the prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Last night, I spoke on the phone with someone who upset me, and while the person was talking, I was thinking of various ways of replying. And by the grace of God, I didn't employ any of those ways. I kept my mouth shut and replied, I trust, courteously. But I had to go to my knees after that phone call and talk to God about the thoughts that he knew were in my heart, the angry retaliative thoughts. Lent is a good time for personal restraint. From ancient times, the renunciation of things that people enjoy for the sake of concentration on things far beyond this life has been customary during Lent. Someone has said, our life is only rightly ordered if the paramount interest is beyond it. Our life is only rightly ordered if the paramount interest is beyond it. What is the paramount interest in your life? Is it something which is purely temporal or is it beyond the temporal? It's a pretty hard concept for most of us to get hold of today. We in America live in a world of tremendous self-indulgence. Christians are afraid of legalism. They don't want to talk about obedience because they're so afraid that they're going to get legalistic. There is an insistence on comfort. How often do you hear people say, do you feel comfortable with so-and-so? Interviewers often use that phraseology with me. And I'm always a little bit perplexed by that. I think, I really don't know what my comfort has to do with a serious matter that they may be asking for my opinion on. It's not It's not a matter of comfort, but we do insist on comfort, feeling good. We just got to feel good, don't we? We've got to have fun, fun, fun all the time. But these are not the roots to healing and to freedom and to spiritual vigor. We need to think about some of these things during Lent. And one of the prayers from the ancient prayer book is, May our fasts be pleasing to thee and be a healing remedy to us. By the exercise of this holy time, may we be made free, be pleasing, receive pardon and help, be made glad with holy devotion. So if you've decided to renounce something during Lent, make it each time an offering of love to the Lord. If you feel that 
there's really no point in fasting, that it's a way of trying to twist God's arm. Let me suggest that you look at it this way. When you give up something that you greatly enjoy and offer it to God, it's just a small indicator that you love him more than you love that thing. And you can just say, Lord, I don't know whether this makes any sense or not. Maybe it doesn't make sense to me. But, Lord, I offer you this renunciation, this small sacrifice, simply as an indication that I love you. It wouldn't hurt you to try that. I'm not going to say more about specific Lenten fasts, but the larger question of our willingness to receive the gifts of our present condition is my subject today. The gifts of your marital status. Are you willing to receive marriage, singleness, widowhood? Have you taken stock of your own heart? Have you received with both hands the gift that God has given to you? One thing that single people don't often think about is that marriage is a gift which requires renunciations. When you get married, you realize that. Virginity also is a gift which requires renunciations. Different kinds of renunciations, of course. Married people can't get away with living entirely for themselves. If they try to live entirely for themselves, the marriage is not going to last very long. But in the worst marriages, there has to be some give and take, some consideration for the other person. Renunciations, small daily renunciations. If you've been given the gift of virginity, this is a renunciation of your sexual desire. You can accept it or you can be bitter and resentful and rebellious against God. Surely that's not going to help you to make much progress spiritually. Do you think of your present marital status as a gift, whether your marital status is singleness or, or marriage? Let me read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 7. Everyone has the gift God has granted him, one this gift and another that. Paul was a single man when he wrote this, and he wished that everyone were single as he was. But then, in a more reasonable tone, he says, everyone has the gift that God has granted him, and one this gift and another that. And also verse 17, each one must order his life according to the gift God has granted him and his condition when God called him. If you do not think that singleness is the gift that God has granted you, even though you're not married now, I would ask you, what gift do you think God has granted you? If you are single, then that is the gift that God has granted you today. He may have another gift for you tomorrow, but today is all you have. Tomorrow is God's business. He has said, take no thought for tomorrow. So let me read Paul's word again. Each one must order his life according to the gift the Lord has granted him. Are you going to order your life according to what marriage means? 
or what singleness means according to whichever God's gift happens to be. Has there ever been a time when you felt a struggle over your past failures or inadequacy to what you felt God was calling you? Was there ever a time when you didn't really feel up to being a husband or a wife when God had already given you a husband or a wife? Has there ever been a time when you didn't feel that you could possibly survive another week of being single? Inadequate to remain single? Inadequate to be a wife? Inadequate as a mother? Inadequate as a spiritual mother to somebody else? We all feel inadequate, don't we? But the demands of our calling are designed as the very channels of God's grace to each one of us. Of course we're inadequate in ourselves. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't be good husbands and wives. We can't be good singles without God's help. But the demands of our calling, whether single or married, are designed as the very channels of God's grace. Do you feel as though you're in a very dry and dusty place? Then drink of God's springs. And I read to you from Isaiah 58, verses 10 and 11. If you feed the hungry from your own plenty and satisfy the needs of the wretched, then your light will rise like dawn out of darkness and your dusk be like noonday. The Lord will be your guide continually and will satisfy your needs in the shimmering heat. He will give you strength of limb. You will be like a watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking about a subject which is a very sore one with many of you. It's the subject of courtship. And my husband Lars and I travel around a lot, and we meet so many beautiful women who are single, who are longing to be what they feel they were made for, to be wives and mothers. And many of you have written to me, some of you with appreciation and some of you taking exception to some of the things I say, and of course, you have every right to do that. I do want you to know that my heart goes out to you, and you can discount Everything I say, because you can say, well, it's easy for her because she's married. I've spent much more of my life single than married, but the fact is I am married. And I have had two former husbands, both of whom died, and God has given me a godly husband now. But I do believe that the things that I have to say are God's word. It's perfectly clear, isn't it, that marriage simply is not given to everyone. It's not given to everyone who wants it. If God is not going to choose marriage for you, and you want what God chooses for you, then what can we say? Well, I keep saying the simple old things, trust God, believe that he loves you, 
He loves you with an everlasting love. Believe that your life is held in those everlasting arms and that you can commit yourself safely into the hands that were wounded for you. All of those things I can say with confidence. What else do you want me to say? Do you want me to say, yes, God will give you a husband if you have enough faith? God is sovereign. We do not understand why God does what he does. But the truth is, happiness is to be found, fulfillment is to be found in the will of God. His will is our peace. His will is our peace. Great peace have they who love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. If we really love God's law, we won't be offended if he withholds from us something that we think is a good thing. Well, during this Lenten season, we've been talking about the restraint of desire. That's what Lent is about. Six weeks from Ash Wednesday to Easter, in which we contemplate the sufferings of Christ. It's a time of restraint, of self-examination, of prayer and quietness. And so I think it's appropriate that we think about the restraint of sexual desire. We've been trying to make it perfectly clear that sexual desire is a God-given thing. But God gave it for the purpose of marriage. I think it was God's original plan that all men and all women would be married. Each one would have one wife or one husband. But because of the disaster of sin entering in way back in the Garden of Eden, all kinds of things have become distorted and fractured. And one of those things is this purpose of of marriage for each one, and it just simply doesn't happen for everyone. But God is still sovereign over what look to us like disasters. God's purpose in sexual desire is marriage. It is the gift that he gives whereby we may glorify him. If he does not give us the gift of marriage, then what are we to do with it? Well, let's think about the restraint of desire when one is single. I'm sure there are thousands of you out there longing for what has not been given, itching to get what isn't gettable, and resentful, some of you, I suppose, because you have what you don't want, singleness, and you badly want what you don't have, marriage. I want to make a clear distinction between restraint and repression. Restraint means holding back from action in any manner, to curb, to control, to bridle, to hold back by physical or moral force. Repression means something denied or resisted, pressed into the subconscious, excluded from consciousness. I'm giving you the psychological definition. Repression and restraint used to be almost synonymous, but a special meaning has been given to repression, which is a pejorative meaning, and it's not a good thing to be repressing things. To deny our sexual desire would not be a good thing. It's not to be denied. It is to be resisted if we're single. 
it is not to be pressed into the subconscious or excluded from consciousness. We need to acknowledge it, to lay our desires before God. A verse which helped me so much when I was longing to be married before I married the first husband was, Lord, all my desire is before thee. And don't be afraid to spread all your desires before him. Don't be afraid to ask for whatever it is that you want. We read in Philippians 4 that we are to make our requests known to God. God knows the desires, but he wants us to make our requests. Someone has said virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings fog. The Bible says abstain from fornication. Fornication means sexual sin. For singles, this means total abstinence from sexual activity. Now, that's what the Bible says. You can reject the Bible if you want to, but remember, you're rejecting God. It's not with me that you should argue. If you have an argument, take it to God. If you say total abstinence is impossible, I would remind you of what C.S. Lewis says, when a thing must be done, never think of the impossibilities. It's not an option. You must ask for God's help. God tells us that we have to be perfect because he is perfect. Could any of us imagine doing that without God's help? So we just have to aim to be obedient. Attempted virtue brings light. Indulgence brings fog. And some of you have great confusion in your lives. You don't seem to be able to get your act together, get your life sorted out. You don't know where to turn. You're depressed. You're resentful. You're lonely. I would suggest that during this Lenten period, you lay that before the Lord, your resentment, your depression, your loneliness, and ask the Lord if perhaps there has been a refusal to obey at any point. Is there a conscious reservation somewhere in your heart? You must ask for his help about this business of never stop to worry about impossibilities. If your child is suddenly seriously injured, for example, you don't sit down and think, there's nothing I can do. You must do something. It may not be possible to do all that you'd want to do, but you don't start thinking about impossibilities. You start immediately thinking of possibilities. What must you do? What can you do? And God's first answer to your prayer for help may be help in trying again. Do you understand that? If you ask God to help you, he may help you to try again. He's not going to do it all for you. He wants you to cooperate with him. The Bible says that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Do we feel as though God is always condemning us? My object in these talks is to be very real and very practical and to help you. I'm speaking to those with ears to hear. What I'm saying is not complicated. It's simple. 
By simple, I don't mean easy. Let me suggest that you set your face to obey the Lord. Tell him you want to obey him. Ask him to help you. That's what he died for. Ask a friend to help you by prayer and counsel. Never put yourself in a position to be tempted. If you are put there in some way other than your own choice, then expect God to fulfill his promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. But he will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape, so that you can bear it. Next, I would suggest that you keep your distance. I mean that quite literally. Keep a physical distance from the opposite sex. The Apostle Paul said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the last thing, don't listen to the world. The world will tell you that you are morbid and melancholy, maybe a hypocrite, a bigot, old before your time, extreme, but I want to give you Jesus' encouragement here. He said in John 15:18, If the world hates you, it hated me first, as you know well. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, because I have chosen you out of the world for that reason, the world hates you. Remember what I said, a servant is not greater than his master. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.